Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined for the second time, backed by popular demand, by the CEO and co-founder of Crowd Property, the UK's leading peer-to-peer property lender. Mike Bristow. So welcome to the podcast, Mike, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. So good to be here again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So in our last episode, we discussed how and why alternative finance is becoming mainstream and how peer-to-peer lending works to solve the problems of both borrowers and lenders. And in this episode, we're going to focus really on busting some common myths and misconceptions around alternative finance. So First off, I don't want to dwell too much on definitions as we we really covered this already in our earlier episode, but it's probably worth you just quickly explaining in 30 seconds or so for those who aren't familiar with the ideas. What is peer-to-peer finance specifically and alternative finance more broadly and how are they typically used in real estate today? Sure. It's a really important question. And this sets up the context of why the alternative finance is in so much growth. The founding principle really is matching the supply and the demand of capital more efficiently okay mm-hmm. and what that really means is that you know in old world financial services you know someone sticks some money say in a bank or ask their IFA where to put it and they put it in a fund we'll take the fund route that fund then allocates it might be a generalist fund might be might then allocate some money into a real estate fund may then put that money into a lender that lender might then find a broker and that broker will find some property developers you know to use the property specific example but we say well let's just cut out all the middlemen and let's deal with developers directly investors directly and make sure that investors get a greater proportion of the return and the way we do that is build a brilliant purpose-built system in the middle that, in our case, brings greater efficiency through technology and effectiveness through expertise, because both are important, and ultimately get a better deal for both borrowers and lenders. That's the crux of it. And it is all leveraging technology, but particularly in property, you also need to leverage deep expertise. Yep. Oh, that's a great pitch. <laughs> so really, it's opening up access and connecting people up that wouldn't, you know, because I suppose the best example that I know of specifically and personally, disclaimer, I'm a lender, is through lending to projects that I wouldn't otherwise get access to as a lender and ditto as a borrower, getting access to capital that you wouldn't otherwise have, basically. Exactly, exactly. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about that on the borrower yeah, side because yeah. that's really important because it, it's a competitive marketplace and we have to compete very, very well for that. But on the lender side, this is the crucial thing. You know, this is an investment class that was not open to, say, for example, my mother who also lends on the platform. And she's able to get a level of confidence from expertise-led curation of projects that then get really well secured. And she's able to contribute to that because of the tech platform and the efficiencies we've built. And then she's able to take advantage of things like tax wrappers, such as um, the ISA and, and SAS and SIP pension lending and all of that. And actually build a beautiful sort of investment class in itself. And, you know, it's because it's a better deal for lenders and a better deal for borrowers that marketplace lending, peer-to-peer lending is in such stratospheric growth not just in the UK, but globally. But we're very, you know, it's very exciting in the UK because 
alongside the US, would lead the world in that. And so many markets, many countries globally look to the best players in the UK and US markets as a reference point for best practice, both in terms of underwriting and rigor, but also in terms of the regulatory environment. Awesome. Okay, so talk me through some of the most common myths or misconceptions around alternative finance in the real estate sector that you find yourself constantly having to explain, perhaps one from a lender's and one from a borrower's perspective. So, yeah, I'll pick out one from each side. Uh, it's a really interesting you can point. You give a short there's, list there if are you so want. Many. <laughs> there are so many. There are so many. And look, you know, when something's new, there's always an element of skepticism about it. But new things only grow if they are better than old things. And that's really important. But on the borrower side, one of the biggest things we see is borrowers saying, oh, I've never thought of peer-to-peer lending or crowdfunding before, as if it's a separate sector. Okay. And yes, we are a marketplace and peer-to-peer lending defines the matching of finding lenders and finding borrowers and putting them together. But actually, we only win in a market that has a more attractive investment proposition to lenders, okay, separate to a more a better proposition to borrowers. And for borrowers, this is really important because this point of saying, oh, I've not considered this or I haven't considered the crowdfunding peer-to-peer lending sector, that's not the way to think about this. We have built and crowd property set out as, as the founding principles to build the best lender in the marketplace, Okay. And that's not just in alternative finance. That's better than the entire traditional banking sector. Why? Because we felt the pain ourselves. It was inefficient, slow, cumbersome, not customer focused, and just didn't deliver, especially to the small and medium-sized property professional market. So think about crowd property as you're in the market, not just there's a peer-to-peer lender or a crowdfunder that I could go to. And, you know, that, that's the imperative. We need to be the best on the borrower side and we need to be the best on the lender side. And that's what we work damn hard to do. And that's exciting because we're dealing with some pretty big competition that, that doesn't like getting disrupted. But the great thing is they're not very good at responding to disruption. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and again, disruption only ever sticks if it's a better product to the customer. So that's why we're in such high growth, is that we're proving ourselves every day, having got better and better and better. And when we started, you know, we weren't the best lender in the market by a long way. You know, our first project we listed on our website, and it took 10 weeks to fund. Well, that's not speed and certainty. (laughs) Yeah. But now we deliver speed, ease and certainty better than anyone else in the market, be it a bank, a non-bank lender or an alternative finance lender. So. You know, and that's really carved out to serve your needs as a property professional, irrespective of where the capital comes from. No, don't worry where the capital comes from. If you're a developer, okay, speak to us and we'll prove that we're the best in the market. Okay, we'll sort the capital. Don't worry about that. We've got a hugely diverse uh, set of sources of capital, you know, from my mother through to global institutions that we were talking about earlier. So the misconception seems to be just to kind of, I suppose, summarise what the misconception really is, because I think there's a, you've made about 10 really good points in there. Really, the misconception is putting things in buckets in a way that it's unnecessary. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's thinking of alternative finance as something different. You know, there's a great quote, 
it's annoying me that I've forgotten who it was, but it's an old school US quote that is, a customer doesn't want a a 10 millimeter drill bit. They want a 10 millimeter hole. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's outcome focuses. What is the outcome they want? Okay. And the outcome is, I want funding for my project and I want it aligned to a certain range of needs that a lot of which are around speedies and certainty. Okay. So... Who can deliver that best for you? That is the best funder for you. Yes. So focus in on what your needs are and who is solving it best, not sort of thinking of things as imaginary sectors. That is really well explained. Okay. And what about from a lender's perspective? What are the big myths and misconceptions that you hear all the time? Yeah. So the too good to be true or it must be risky sort of statements Okay, and I, I'm going to heavily caveat this because yeah. we're an FCA authorized and regulated business. Okay, and it's very important when you look at rates that you compare risk as well. And, you know, we deliver very, very good returns for the risk profile of the product. And I'll explain why in a second. But we are, you know, capital is at risk with our platform. We work very hard to expertly curate it. We've got the due diligence expertise and we put first charge security behind everything. Okay. But just because it's high risk, high rates doesn't mean that it's high risk. Okay. And, And I come back to the point that I made earlier. If you more efficiently match the supply and demand of capital, and the cost in between is as little as possible, then the lenders and the borrowers get a better deal. The reason why, and this is not a comparable product because capital is not at risk, but the reason why people get so little proportionally of what banks will lend out in their savings accounts is because banks are enormously inefficient behemoths. They have big retail branch networks, huge offices, huge workforces, expensive to maintain legacy IT systems, regulatory cost of capital, and all of these elements that basically put cost in between what the person with the money gets as a proportion of what the person using that money to add value is paying. And the whole alternative finance sector has basically crunched that down to as small as possible to give borrowers and lenders a better deal. Okay, so the reason for better rates in alternative finance is because of fundamental efficiency. And that fundamental efficiency, the platforms don't keep it for themselves. They share it with lenders and borrowers such that alternative finance therefore goes into high growth and basically takes out banking. Now, that is a big picture statement and a strong statement, and it hasn't yet. But it is, you know, it's a sector that's growing, you know, 50 to 100% a year. And there aren't many sectors of this maturity and this size that are growing at that kind of rate. Yeah. So, you know, the fundamental economics make sense, deliver a better deal for customers, and therefore customers want more of it. So this is not because... And we could probably go into a little bit more of this later as well. It's like, obviously, there are platforms that position themselves differently on the risk profile. And it's really important things to know about that. But the fundamentals are, you know, more efficiently matched, better deal for all. Yeah, great. 
yeah, we can definitely talk about risks. I mean, that's one of my favorite topics, really. But I do think it's really important to address that. And for both borrowers and lenders, I think there are more myths and misconceptions around risk than probably any other topic (laughs) other than returns, really. But so one of the myths I see in the alternative finance space, and as I said earlier, currently as a lender, but in the past, I've also been a borrower for development projects with alternative finance lenders. It's basically the same as what I see today. My day-to-day activity is primarily looking at deals and managing assets within the business that I'm leading. Basically, there's a misconception that bigger, more widely known providers will somehow be better. And in fact, what I found as a lender, as a borrower, and also then, like I said, day to day in sourcing deals or getting the right management for the right assets, is that often smaller, faster growing businesses and challenges with a good level of experience and expertise, like you mentioned earlier, can be easier, they can be more efficient, they can be more cost effective to work with than larger competitors. But as we kind of alluded to in the last question, it's really not the case across the board. And the alternative finance space, I think, has, well, obviously it has a lot of relatively small, relatively innovative or challenger businesses. And so I think it's kind of especially important to know how to sort the wheat from the chaff. How does one sort the good from the bad or the suitable from the unsuitable as a borrower and a lender in alternative finance? Yeah, this is really important because... You can't just say by selecting you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I, well, I wasn't going to be so cheeky. But, um, <laughs> no, a few years ago, there were very few barriers to setting up a platform in this space. Now there are more barriers, okay? and But more importantly, the space is maturing. There's a new SCA regulatory re- regime, which has sort of implemented somewhat of a higher bar so that everyone needs to comply with that. And, and just tell us quickly about that. What is that? Is it a new just for peer-to-peer or is it across alternative finance? What's the... Yeah, so various requirements came in from the SCA who did a big consultation study into predominantly peer-to-peer. And they've come out with various recommendations that, that all platforms had to implement on the 9th of December last year. And that's good because, you know, that actually took a number of the good practices out there and enforce that across the board because there wasn't that a consistent bar of quality. Now there is a consistent bar, at least. Okay, now there's still a quality spectrum. My view on this is that these platforms are still lenders. Okay, now not lenders in the truest sense of lending from their own balance sheet, but lenders as in curating opportunities for their lending customers to participate in. And you're only a lender if you get the money back. Okay, let's go back to base principles. Yeah, otherwise you're just a charity without a cause. And property developers are not a popular charity. So (laughs) you better make sure you can get the money back. So what sort of really underpins and is imperative there is expertise in exactly the asset class that you're lending against. So, you know, look for the platforms, look for the expertise, look for the people within those platforms who have decades of experience in exactly that asset class that you're looking at. Whatever asset class it is, okay, in alternative finance, you look for that asset class expertise. That's what drives the ability to set up due diligence, rigor, and processes, and the tech platform that drives the workflow, and all of these elements. And then ultimately, you know, if stuff goes wrong, uh, how good are they getting money back? Okay. And that means that people need to have been in that asset class through multiple cycles. And look, quite frankly, people have in the past underestimated the fin in fintech. 
Okay, so this is a fintech space, okay? And it's not all about the tech. The tech is the enabler. The smart tech drives that efficient matching of supply and demand of capital, as I mentioned earlier. But the effectiveness is the fin, okay? And that effectiveness is in the due diligence rigor. And this is really important. And if you've been, you know, if, you know, we as a business, you know, all of us have, have been in the shoes of SME developers, you know, developing ourselves. I mean, three co-founders have 75 years of investment and development experience between us. We're not coming from something else applying into this trade. We're not just tech people. We're not just bankers. We are real property people with real hands-on expertise that know how to help through a project, assess a project, and get a, a successful execution out of the back end. I think that is super important as well. Sorry, just to add in there is there's a huge problem in prop tech more broadly, where there's people who are experts in technology and people who are experts in property. And it's actually really hard to or add, add financial services into that, to prop tech, fintech, or whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of different disciplines that you can get experts in one that really don't understand rigmarole that you have to get through in the others. And I think that is a huge problem more broadly in the prop tech and presumably fintech space. Exactly. And, you know, in my own angel investing in prop tech, and also I sit on the investment committee of Europe's most prolific prop tech venture capital fund called PyLabs. And one of the key considerations in team of founders is that there's deep tech and deep sector expertise. They are ideally in two different people. And that's a massive plus point for that team. And, you know, it's those principles that we're applying massively in crowd property. So there's expertise. So you really need to understand that these guys know what they're doing. Okay. From a, or from both perspectives, really, there's a customer focus. Now, I'm not exactly being controversial by saying, let's have some customer focus in our lives as a business. It's not genius business strategy. It's kind of fundamentals. But saying it is irrelevant. (laughs) Saying it is irrelevant. Doing it is very different. Exactly. Well, and quite frankly, banks and traditional sources of funding for SME property developers have neither said it nor done it over the next over the last decade. You know, total failing to the sector. And, you know, okay, so you know, I can't say that for absolutely everyone, but the data supports this, yeah. So in two thousand and eight, thirty percent of housing supply in this country was delivered by small builders. Okay. And by the way, we were not building anywhere near enough anyway, which we haven't done for decades. But nine years later in 2017, 10% of supply is from small builders. Housing output from small builders fell by two thirds. And if you ask them why, the biggest reason why is because the structural failing of traditional sources of funding. So on a macro level, this is absolutely true. Okay. Now, what happened between 2008, 2017? A total Explosion of the global financial system. And, you know, that definitely had implications through into SME property development lending as it did through uh, SME business lending. But, you know, it is absolutely true on a majority level that the reason for that is because the product is not fit for purpose and accessible to SME property developers who are so vital for housing supply in this country because large builders will run out of large plots of land. And also, you know, we need to build a hell of a lot more houses anyway, not least for the, to, to, to help or to stop exacerbating the housing crisis. But crucially, and 
especially now in these times, we're going to need to build our way out of economic challenges, okay, good Keynesian economics. And the SME building construction industry is going to be so vital to that, as is building things like HS2. But SMEs to deliver and try to realize what they actually need per year uh, in housing supply. But also, they are long-term going to need to be the providers of housing, given that there are near infinite small parcels of land, but certainly finite large parcels of land for large builders to develop out. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been real pain in the marketplace. But anyway, I mean, so how else do you sort of decipher within this in this alternative finance space? Transparency is a matter. Sorry, I'm going to flick around a bit on lender-borrower side. Ooh, I, yeah, yeah. I've, I've talked about borrower side. I, I'm going to talk a bit about lender side. So security is first. So what security are you getting for your capital and your interest? And as a platform, we only do first charge security at modest LTVs. And the product we are backing is domestic undersupplied housing in liquid markets at mainstream price points where there is enduring demand. So you need to understand that exit market, the security package available to you. And they're the projects looking forward. But looking back, you need to look for track record, number of years of lending, amount paid back, average returns, level of defaults, et cetera, et cetera. And then the transparency of all of those factors because if you cannot find a piece of data on someone's website, okay, there is probably a reason why. And there are fundamental pieces of data that you need to know as an investor on an alternative finance platform. And I'll give you the most important data to look for. Okay, so if you're considering lending in peer-to-peer lending, alternative finance, okay, you need to find out on their website, on average, what the borrower pays and on average, what the lender gets. Okay. And the reason for that, and on our statistics page, which is award-winning, we talk about this a lot, and we go into all of the data, partly because I'm a total data geek, and that shows up in our account page structuring as well. But if you as a lender are getting 8%, and you've got security, great, great. But if the borrower is paying 10%, you're thinking, wow, actually, I'm getting a great fair share of the return there. Okay. And that borrower rate is set in the context of a competitive market. So that is a fairly good risk reward balanced, competitively fought for loan. And you're getting 80% of the interest. Whereas if you were getting 8% and the borrower was paying 16%, for example, then that borrower hasn't been able to borrow cheaper anywhere else. And therefore, the risk is really wrapped up in that 16%. Okay. And you're not getting a fair share of it. And the platform who should be efficiently matching the supply and demand of capital is profiteering from it. So it's those two numbers. On average, what does the borrower pay? And on average, what do lenders get? Okay. That tells you everything you need to know about the efficacy of that platform. That's a really good (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's crucial. And if they're not showing you, ask why. Because, you know, All of these platforms have the data to be able to do it in their systems. They could be posting that. And that is not an SUA requirement to post that data, but it should be in my view. And we always always have been totally transparent about that. There's also transparency on the borrower side as well, because people are fed up with hidden hidden fees and contracts. And and one of the things that will come out of these more challenging times, it's are the hidden fees that litter 
the property development lending contracts. And we take a lot of time going through all of those contracts to really mull over all of the hidden fees in disgust that unfortunately, when you know, you really realize that when either a project goes wrong or a market condition gets challenging. And, you know, many people in this market are going to be looking at their contract saying, ah, I didn't read this fully enough. So tip number two, this time on the borrower side is read the contract. Now, (laughs) it sounds obvious, yeah, but I'm amazed at how many people do not know, for example, the penalty interest rate after the term ends on their contract. You know, we, we did a big, big survey to SME property developers. And one of the questions we asked was to experienced borrowers was, what was the rate, uh, what's the penalty rate on your contract the last time you took out project finance? 25% of people didn't know. And the reason why that's scary is of the rest, 32% knew it was over 2% a month. 18% knew it was over 3% a month. Okay, 3% a month. You know, and then the raft of hidden fees, we've seen arrangement, management, and setup fees on the same contracts. It's all the same thing, but it's a three different buckets of fees. Yeah, I could go on, but my tip on the, the borrower side is just read the contract. These are commercial contracts that are not regulated by the SCA because you're professional borrowers and you need to know every single term and don't think for a second that they are standard terms in the market because they can put whatever they want in there. The final bit I'm just going to touch on is actually the business itself. Okay. And there are a couple of elements to this. Firstly, lending is a, you know, you need good resource and and plentiful and sufficient resource to assess it well. Okay. So as a business, you need to see sufficient resource in that business. Okay. You know, we have a team of 32 and we're all very, very busy. Okay. And, you know, it scares me earlier stage platforms that have smaller teams that cannot by definition do the business as rigorously as we do. There's the sustainability of that business, whether it's profit making, whether it's cash flow positive, you know, good business fundamentals. And, you know, we're very proud to say that, you know, during the lockdown months, for example, each month we've been P&L positive and cash flow positive. And that says everything about where we are as a business, the sustainability of our business, the proactive management within our business. And then finally is what's under the control of that business. So we believe that you have to control all key elements. So good example of that is direct SEA regulation, not through an appointed representative, but also in-house tech. So our our team of 32, 10 of those are tech developers because that's core to our business. They are both in our business, i.e. not outsourced, and B, they are in our office, i.e. not sat in Eastern Europe. And that gives us control and agility. And it comes back to exactly your points of agility and being different to the incumbent players in the market because we can move fast. We've delivered changes overnight based on customer feedback that says, right, you know, I've literally, you know, dealt in the stereotypical tech developer currency of pizza um, (laughs) and bought in a load of pizzas, sat us all in the office, me there as well, saying, right, we're going to deliver this overnight because customers really want it now. And that was actually the first time when projects were selling out in seconds. And we were getting a hell of a lot of uh, complaints on the lender side because people couldn't get in. 
And so overnight, we delivered ple- pledge limits to limit the total am- a pledge that someone could submit and making sure that's flexible for a period of time and integrated across their accounts and various levels of complexity. But overnight, we were able to say to lenders, we've listened, we've delivered and the very next day, the very next project launch, we had more lenders being able to get into a project with direct customer outcomes as a result. You know, that is impossible with a banking tech architecture. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay. So we've kind of covered quite a lot within that one question about sourcing the wheat from the chaff. So we might have touched on some of my later questions. But one thing I wanted to address was from a borrower's perspective. I think there's a myth that alternative finance will definitely be more expensive, which if you look at kind of niche lenders in the long term lending market, I think that kind of is the case, but less so in shorter term bridging and development finance. And there's other myths relating to how borrowing from an alternative lender can be more risky. How have these come about? And how do you debunk that myth? about risk and cost, basically, from a borrower's perspective. And we've touched on a lot of the themes. So yeah, sorry to make you repeat yourself on a few points. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And look, and your differentiation there between term and short term is really important. So, you know, if you've got the residential mortgage on your own property, if you're at 50% LTV, okay, then there's no alternative financing lender in the market that is going to be able to match Barclays at 1.3%. You know, yeah. full stop. Okay. But that is commodity finance. Okay. So just churn finance, no value add, no expertise needed. And that's straight channeling base rate LIBOR into long term low risk product. The Barclays just takes a clip and does enormous volume. Okay. Commodity stuff. Where this is interesting and more complex is where, especially in short-term lending in property, you know, especially in property development funding, um, you know, it's complex. Okay, it's not commoditized. You have to have deep expertise in the business. You have to have humans involved in the process. You can use tech to manage out everything in terms of workflows, analytics, market data, etc. And we do all of that brilliantly so that everything that can be automated is automated. And then everything that requires a human brain to input expertise, okay, then does that. And that gets us to be a very, very efficient lender. Now, in terms of price, okay, we as a business are a lender of first resort. Okay, that's our positioning. And we, our strategic aim is to attract the best quality projects to us. Therefore, we need to be priced down competitively. And we benchmark that on a monthly basis. Okay. And we have a set of benchmark companies that we look at and we match their rates. And by matching the biggest rates out there or the best rates out there, okay, in the SME space, what that means is that we attract applications. When we attract an application, we smash it out of the park on speed, service, expertise, relationships, long-term partnership approach, et cetera, et cetera. And people want to work with us. So that is how we get the best loans. So it is in our interest to price very competitively, and we do so. Now, in any market, there's a spectrum of pricing. And there are, you know, there have there been some players and some players that actually have folded because I don't personally believe that this positioning is the right positioning, but it's kind of the lender of last resort positioning, i.e. people that can't get funding from elsewhere, they could go to, there are platforms 
offering this positioning, where it's a worse project, in my opinion, probably shouldn't get funded, but they're then paying high rates and offering high rates to their investors. Now, this is fraught with problems because you get a bad project with bad economics and high debt interest rates. Now, that's not going to end well, and it hasn't ended well in a couple of instances. So the entire motivation for the good protagonists in the sector is to be very competitive on rates. So that's the internal viewpoint and positioning for us. The other thing here is I talked about the hidden fees and rates and penalty rates and all of this stuff, okay, is that so much of the stuff is buried. So much of the real costs of financing facility are buried in the hidden fees, okay? And in our view and our research view, transparency is the number one most important thing. So we simplify all of that. We say, well, we don't have hidden fees. We just have a flat headline rate. No, sorry, that varies by risk. It varies by LTV and LTGDV and a couple of other measures. But the point is, once you've got the rate, you know the costs. We don't bury things in the small print because that's not transparent. We're not, as a business, looking to monetize one loan or profiteer from one loan, which there's plenty of activity in the market that does look to do that. We are looking to build a long-term partnership um, that enables property professionals to grow their property businesses quicker, more successfully, and make, and make more of a margin each one that goes by because it gets easier and easier. They're working with partners that are established. They know how to work, and they get better and better at what they do. So the challenge there is that sometimes, and historically, we've been perceived as more expensive because we've been transparent about rates and our fees. And you know that's been a bit of a challenge, but my overall belief here is that when this message and reality gets out of people having been hit by these hidden fees, people will realize that actually transparency transcends everything. It builds trust and it builds partnerships. And we're in this business to build long-term partnerships with borrowers. So, you know, that's how we think. We think strategically about all of these activities, about building trusted brands, both borrower and lender side, to be very, very customer focused. And you add that to a load of efficiency and you can deliver a brilliant, brilliant product in the market that, you know, many people have called game changing. And, you know, that's what we're proud of because, you know, we're building a 10, 20, 30 year business here. We're not building a business just to, you know, sell out in a year or two's time. It's just anyone that talks about that. It's just talking very, very flawed business strategy and motivations. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've got time for one more question, which is, can you tell me about one myth or misconception around alternative finance in the property space or even around running your own business that you once believed and don't any longer? It's really... Can you do me one, one for each? One about alternative finance and one about running your own business. <laughs> I'm going to mention a couple of things that are more truisms than debunked myths <laughs> or misconceptions, okay? Because I think these are really, really important to understand. Firstly, structural cost advantage is everything. If you do things more efficiently and more effectively than anyone else, okay, you have enduring, sustainable competitive advantage. But it is so fundamental to business. And that sort of brings you on to maybe a myth or a misconception that, you know, can you walk into a market and just take apart 
behemoth competition. Well, quite frankly, that's exactly what we've gone and done. We've gone heads ahead with, in a big market, big, well-resourced banks and non-bank lenders that we're taking apart because they had gaps in their strategy. They had gaps in their customer focus and they did not have structural cost advantage. So you could bring all of that into any market, okay, and break it and really disrupt and really take material market share and build a scalable business that has the potential to take the entire market. And, you know, that's how we think as a business. And that's exciting because, you know, that sets our challenge as a team. Our team is brilliantly passionate about everything. And one of those things is, is going, doing exactly that, just taking this entire market. Okay. And there are two sub points to that, which are, so I'm going to revert to truisms. And number one is focus. Okay. Our focus on being the best lender in the market to SME property professionals is our single vision, our single driver. And I'm sure I've said this before, um, that you know, the phrase that my team get bored of me saying is that you don't see Tiger Woods playing much tennis. You become world-class by doing the same thing better and better and better and better. And then you blow away the competition. And I believe this in every t- single business activity. You know, in building your property portfolio, focus. Focus on buying, adding value and holding and renting and yielding, you know, stuff that you know what to do. And you can just get better and more efficient every time. You can build the scale economies. Okay. And that will create you either the ability to grow bigger, quicker, or the option to take a bit more time off and spend time with your families, stuff that I'm terrible at doing um, (laughs) because I'm just wrapped up in this relentless focus on taking this market. The entrepreneur's curse. (laughs) It's so true. It is a vicious curse. It's a vicious curse. And sometimes I look at my phone and after the weekend, it says, congratulations, you know, your screen time was 15% less this weekend and it's still four and a half hours. (laughs) I'm checking the data on the platform and stuff. It's horrific. It's a total curse. But it's because we've got such a relentless passion on what we're focusing on. And then the final bit, just to wrap up, because this is very, very relevant to this exact market right now, is that reputation is everything. Mm. What businesses and individuals do in times like this, it defines you. Okay. And... When you're working in the best interest of your customers in times like this, and you're doing the best you possibly can, and for example, in our space, we're continuing to lend in a market where pretty much everyone pulled out of the market to lend, okay, and for various reasons. And we've seen development lenders, okay, that have not only stopped lending, but they've reneged on offers, and they've even stopped releasing drawdowns on projects, which is the most disruptive thing that can ever happen in, in, that is genuinely in, in property awful. development. <laughs> yeah. yeah, genuinely awful. And we have turned around and refinanced those, a couple of instances of those within a couple of weeks to get those projects back on because it wasn't because of the quality of the projects. It was because of the constraints of a lender that had a single source of capital that dried up. 
in these times. And, you know, I still, when anyone mentions RBS to me, I still think about their attitude in 0809, where they would just repossess and fire sell anything. You know, that's 12 years of reputation ingrained into at least my mind, and I'm sure others, although, you know, it's particular in our space. So, you know, this imperative of serving your customers best in the toughest of times, working with your customers best in the toughest of times, it, that's what differentiates you as a business, as people, or as anything. And, you know, that's what we're very proudly doing at the moment. And we know that's enhancing our reputation as property people doing property finance, really understanding the needs of the developer rather than taking wholesale, non-property best interest decisions. And we're making those decisions in the best interests of both borrowers and lenders. And, you know, that's how we built a trusted brand. That's how we are reinforcing our trusted brand even further. That's how coming out of this, during it and coming out of it, we are in a very, very good position to deliver exactly on our ambitions of taking this market. And it's super exciting. Um, You know, I couldn't have a more passionate team behind us doing this. And it's, you know, we've grown hugely since we last spoke and I, and I can't wait to yeah. report back in a bit, but I'm sure you, you well, also watch uh, how we're growing as well. So. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm loving seeing the progress and it absolutely will have you back to talk about it again. No doubt you'll have taken over the world in six months time. So you can do it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, it just, just the SME property development world, because otherwise that wouldn't be focused. That's right? true. <laughs> so if listeners want to find out more about you and the business and what you do or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. So firstly, crowdproperty.com. That's the best place to find out about us, either from the investor or borrower side. We've also got a blog, which is blog.crowdproperty.com, where we put a load of content on, which is really useful. Last year, towards the end of last year, we did a series of 40 articles all about alternative finance, crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending, crowd property and property. And, you know, those articles are a great read to understand all perspectives of our business. And, you know, you can apply for finance run projects past us in just five minutes and we'll give a view because we've got a great tech and data system to assess projects incredibly efficiently and give you a second opinion so that you're not either wasting time or gives you the confidence to just forget everything and close the deal. And then follow us on social media. We're quite active. We'll keep you informed. And there's interesting content posted all the time, especially on LinkedIn uh, That's what, and Instagram the sort of two hottest places probably to follow us and you know we're not just a website there's real phone numbers that get through to real people in the footer of the website and we're happy to answer any questions at any point as well awesome oh that's great well thank you so much for joining me pleasure it's a very enjoyable as always (laughs) it's really great to speak to you cheers bye Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.